Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour. Driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition. It's Rosie on the House. And a great big good morning to you all. Welcome to my house, Rosie on the House. We've thrown the doors wide open. Come on in, pour yourself a cup of coffee, and we are your Arizona Homeowners Weekend Wake-Up Call, a 30-year tradition of bringing you great information, great stories, and boy, have we got one for you now. A couple special guests here in studio. I'd like to start first with Executive Director Mrs. Michelle Demuro of the Ver- Veterans Heritage Project. Ms. Michelle, thank you for coming in this morning. Oh, thank you for having us. And tell me a little bit. I know we've had the Veterans Heritage Program on before, but let's update the homeowners. Who are y'all? What do y'all do? Well, we are an Arizona nonprofit, and we operate a character education program in middle schools, high schools, and community colleges. We are in about 30 schools across the state where our students are interviewing veterans and recording their stories of service and honoring them by um, writing their stories, publishing them in a book called Since You Asked, presenting that book to them at the end of the school year in a big uh, free community event, and also sharing their um, their interview footage with the Library of Congress. You've got to tell the story of how this all started. That's well, a great story. It is. It is. Um, so Barbara Hatch is our founder. She was a high school AP history teacher. And back in 1998, a student asked her about the movie Saving Private Ryan and how real was that movie. And she said, well, let's write to our veterans. And we reached out to the VFW and, and asked veterans to come in and tell us about their own personal experiences. And so that continued throughout the years. And in 2004, um, Salt River Project was funding local history projects. And the students said, let's do this and let's do it with our veterans. And Barbara, also having been um, the yearbook advisor, had the the background for that. Put one and one together. Put, put them together. And, and they said, let's record our veterans' stories. Let's publish them in a book. And an SRP helped fund that very first book. And y'all have been publishing the book uh, since you asked. Yes, is the name of the book. Yep. it's an annual publication, and y'all been publishing for thirteen, fourteen years. We're actually in the middle of our sixteenth edition. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's pretty exciting. And then um, in two thousand, so that two thousand four, two thousand five school year was the first year we did that, and there was such. Um, encouragement from the community and from the veterans and the parents and the impact that they saw. They said, we needed to get this to more schools. So how do we do that? And so in 2009 is when we became a nonprofit in order okay. to bring it to more schools. All right. So are you looking for more schools to get involved? We are. We, we're actually at capacity right now. We can only work with about 30 schools. We have a waiting list. Of, oh, that's fantastic. And so we're trying to raise funds so that we can increase our our resources, our um, support staff, our technology, those types of things so we can uh, work with those schools who want to bring our program to them. The mission statement, as I understand it, is connecting students with veterans in order to honor veterans, preserve history, and develop future leaders. 
Correct. That's awesome. How are y'all funded? 501c3? Yep, we're a 501c3. um, So we're dependent upon, you know, community contributions, um, grants, individual contributions. We ask our school partners to help uh, publish the student, the student's work, the veteran's story in the book, and they can do that through um, charitable tax credit donations through the school chapters, through each school. Okay. Um, but then also we are um, holding a special event called Saluting Stories of Service, where we will be raising funds to kind of help build our capacity. An annual fundraising banquet. Right. Fantastic. Veterans Heritage Project, the website? Veteransheritage.org. Veteransheritage.org. Connecting school-age students at 7th grade to to senior? Yes, as well as um, we uh, have a partnership with Maricopa Community Colleges, and we also have our very first chapter at ASU this year. Connecting with veterans. Well, we're about ready to connect with another special guest, an incredible veteran with an absolutely incredible almost unspeakable biography. I'd like to introduce United States Air Force Colonel Thomas H. Kirk. Colonel uh, Kirk, uh, I can't uh, thank you enough to taking, you're taking your personal time to come join us. Thank you, Rosie. I appreciate being here. Tell us just real quick uh, how Veterans Heritage Project found you. Well, I think Veterans Heritage Project found me because I am a real advocate for veterans. If there's anything I'm doing with the rest of my life is trying to get with organizations, make talks, be around people, and contribute to anything that will better better make the lives and the future of veterans after serving our country. There's a that's a that that's a big life mission, Colonel. <laughs> I. I'm kind of a ham, Rosie. I'll, I'll go anywhere, anytime, and speak to any group for the case or the story of what veterans mean to this country. And everything I believe in is led by the word service. The, the operative word is service to this country. And it's, it's not a small thing. It's a giant thing to me to think of the hundreds of thousands, even millions, who have answered the call left home, left family, not knowing when or if they'd ever get back, put on a uniform, go anywhere they're told, do any job they're told to support this wonderful country. And so many down through the years, so many thousands have given, made the supreme sacrifice for guys like me. I chose to be a military guy and loved it, 28 years in the service, and loved it. But I had a lot of young men die that were in my squadron in Vietnam and uh, I was one of those that was blessed to come home, but a very unfortunate day in 1967. Yeah, we, we want to go into that. Uh, Colonel Kirk uh, has won the Veteran Heritage Project's Storyteller Award of the Year for this year. Uh, he'll be presenting at the annual banquet, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about a particular special auction item that's going to be offered at that banquet, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Colonel Kirk, you were talking about the legions of young men and women signing up to serve this country. Why do they do it? Many of them do it to, for a ch- simple change of life. They see and know what's happening in the country at any point in our history, and they see that 
things have been and are so good for Americans, and they are told from the lowest level of school up until everything every day in the news, the benefits, the privileges, and what it is to be an American, and what we've learned and gained, and what we've struggled to do to produce the freest country in the history of mankind, certainly the greatest country in the history of mankind. And I believe most young people feel an innate desire to help, to serve, to make it better, if you will. And going into the military is the ultimate way to do that, because once you sign your name on a line, you effectively sign a check to the federal government up to the amount of your life. And that's pretty heavy when you think about it. And I think that my experiences with Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, the same kind of people are in all these organizations, just good, solid American people who realize the greatness of this country. They want to help make it stay that way and fight our enemies. Well, I had two son-in-laws within days of 9-11. One left the banking industry, went straight in the Army. He was in Army Reserve and went full time. And my other son-in-law left the home inspection business and went straight into the Marines. It was, it was a, that was their trigger mechanism. Absolutely. It, it was the rallying call. Yep, the rallying call. Yeah. Well, I've heard one of your presentations to students, and you, you said it's magical to be American. And that, that, that's, that, that's poetry. Yes, but it's so true. It, one of the biggest things that bother me today is I'm, I fear that the word and the spirit of patriotism and for patriotic people is sort of suppressed, and it shouldn't be. Uh, my wife and I, she will back me up 100%. Every day is the 4th of July to me. It's only when you have lost this freedom do you really begin to understand the value of it. In, in our lives, in our lives, and in our country, and boy, it doesn't—it it doesn't take long to travel abroad. And you spent what twenty-five years in yeah, Europe? Yeah, tw- almost not quite. <laughs> Up, I spent a lot of time in the Far East too, especially yeah. a prison camp. But a lot in Europe and a lot in the Far East. And I actually served in thirteen countries, and uh, in every way I've ever been, I love Italy, for example. But I—I I realize full well. That it can't hold a candle to what we have in true freedoms and opportunities in this great country. And you grew up where? I grew up in Virginia. Norfolk? No, Portsmouth, right across the river. You're okay. right across the river. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a pretty patriotic place to be right there. <laughs> yes, Watch, yeah. Watching that port get, can, can make you tear up pretty quick. That's the home of the Atlantic fleet, no question about it. My dad worked for 38 years in the Navy Yard, and, and during— between my junior and I'm sorry, my sophomore and junior year in high school, I helped build the battleship Alabama right there in that uh, Navy Yard. Man, <laughs> now that's a piece of history right there. Yeah. But the next thing I want to go to is your story. You are the Storyteller Award winner this year for the Veter- Veterans Heritage Project. And folks, uh, get your napkins, get your Kleenexes. Uh, settle back in your chair. This is one of the most awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, reverent stories you've ever heard from any veteran you've ever met. And you're meeting them right here at my house. 
and it's my honor to introduce you and for you to get to know him. It's Colonel Thomas H. Kirk, United States Air Force. Thank you, Rosie. The Rosie on the House, Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. You know what I didn't do at the top of the hour is uh, ordinarily on Memorial Day and Veterans Day and Fourth of July, I tell you that if you don't have old glory flying in your front yard, I don't want you listening to my show. <laughs> so you make sure somewhere's on your property you've got old glory flying today because we're here with special guests, United States Air Force Colonel Thomas H. Kirk. Now listen, just listen to his resume. Awarded the Air Force Cross, four silver stars, two distinguished flying crosses, seven air medals, and the Purple Heart. Now, you don't think there's a story behind that? Colonel Kirk, that's quite a resume. What what made you uh, leave teenage years in Virginia and decide, I want to sign up? You really hit me where it hurts. No, my, I was an only child. My family from birth wanted me to be a doctor. I went to VMI in Virginia in pre-med, was accepted in med school, and in the summer before going to med school, I stopped right in the middle of Main Street of my hometown one day and said, this is it's not going to work. I don't want to be a doctor. I never want to be a doctor. But I had graduated what we call a distinguished military graduate, which gave me a regular commission in the Air Force, like going to West Point. Okay. There was no Air Force Academy in those days. So I called the colonel and said, I want to take that commission. I want to go in the Air Force. And he says, you've got to fly. And I said, sir, why? I've never had a ride in an airplane. And uh, so I went, and it was about three months into the one-year flying training program to get my wings. I thought, I, this is not very much sun. Somebody's yelling at me in the back seat all the time, <laughs> telling me how dumb I was. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't fly the airplane. But after about three months of the year-long program, it was like somebody had given me a shot of drugs. I just was addicted to flying. Getting and I, up. And I flew for 28 years. I loved every moment of it in all kinds of airplanes and all kinds of situations. What is that first trainer aircraft you're up in? They called an AT-6. It was the advanced trainer in World War II with a propeller. And I remember as if it was this morning, we were taking off, and I was in the front seat, and the instructor was in the back seat. And as we rolled down the runway, I'm looking, and we're leaving the ground, and I'm thinking, what in the hell am I doing here? And that's the honest truth. <laughs> and and you, you opt straight into the Air Force? Oh, right straight in, yes. yeah, Right into flying. And you graduated? Yeah, graduated from one, the year, trainer. one year later. Oh, we went right from a trainer. Uh, I wanted to go in the P-51, which was a famous fighter from That's World fun. War II. And I asked for it, and they shut the school down. And so the jet quota was filled in those days. And uh, so I had to go into bomber advanced training, the B-25 Mitchell bomber that bombed Tokyo with Jimmy Doolittle. And I finished my training in that and it took me almost two years after that to get into fighters because I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Wow. And you were. Yeah. And you made it. <laughs> I made it. And, and uh, led the largest, largest fighter bomber squadron invasion of Korea and, at the time or ever? No, no. The, in, in Korea, my job was both forward air controller where I was in 
the same airplane I trained in the AT-6, and I would go up over the front lines with an Army artillery observer in the back seat, and we would mark targets five five miles into the past the front lines in enemy, enemy territory. At what altitude are you? When you're spying on these guys, about a thousand or two thousand feet, they, they can hit you. With <laughs> you're a in range. Yeah, we're in range, and we'd actually go in and mark targets for smoke. I had smoke rockets on this airplane. I'd mark targets, and the fighters would come in and bomb the targets. Then I'd have to go back in and get what we call a bomb damage assessment of what they'd done and give them a report. That was the first thing. And then I did what I don't think anybody else did. I was able to talk my way into the fourth fighter interceptor uh, wing, which was the F-86 Sabre jet, which the ones that got all the MiGs, you know, shot down all the North Vietnamese or North Korean fighters. And uh, they took me without any time in fighters. And I, I was hung around out there flying anything I could do for about a month and then got into the airplane. And that got me into fighters for the rest of my career. And that took you from prop to jet? Yes, in Korea. What's that transition like? Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet whatever drug you were on in the prop plane, oh, yeah. boy, it really turned up the octane in that jet. Huh? That's right. What was it like the first time you broke the sound barrier? Uh, sound, the breaking the sound barrier is all intellectual because there's no difference in feeling of going 500 miles an hour or so about 630 is breaking the sound barrier. And I've been two times the speed of sound up around 1,400 miles an hour. That gets your attention, but when you're looking down, it doesn't make any difference. It looks like you're going the same speed as if you were flying a smaller airplane. But it's exciting when the airplane's just going like hell all the time. Oh, I imagine. That must be an <laughs> adrenaline rush beyond compare. <laughs> it's fun. Oh. Well, this is a great story leading up to all this, but I think the reason you won the Storyteller Award for the Veterans Heritage Project this particular year was because of things that happened later in your military life. And they are the tear-jerking, awe-inspiring facts of your time in the Vietnam War. And I want to cover that for the benefit of all of our listeners here, but we're going to have to take a short break and get caught up on sports and weather and traffic and all that. But folks, don't, don't go anywhere What Colonel Kirk has to share with you on this next segment is worth another cup of coffee. Sit yourself down. Get comfortable. You're going to love this next segment. I guarantee. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. And welcome back to Rosie on the House, where we have two special guests here in studio. Mrs. Michelle DeMuro, Executive Director of the Veterans Heritage Project, and special guest, Colonel, United States Air Force Colonel Thomas H. Kirk, who I promised you would tell a great story, your life in service in the Air Force. Well, thank you, Rosie. I think what you're talking about is tell me the dark days of my life. Uh, I was a squadron commander, a young lieutenant colonel, 38 years old, in Thailand, based in Thailand, flying just about every other day into the area around Hanoi, North Vietnam. And this is in 1965? October, October 1967. Okay, all right. I'm 38 years old. I, I have 66 missions, and this particular day I'm slated to lead the largest fighter-bomber raid of the war at that time. We combined two bases uh, to get us 48 
F-105 dive bombers, the principal dive bomber in Vietnam, and we're going up to bomb the Tom Kirk Memorial Bridge in downtown Hanoi. It's <laughs> 7.30 in the morning, and we, I called, we are right over there, right over the city, and I called the roll-in, and all 48 airplanes roll in, dive down on the target to drop out bombs. Halfway down the bomb run in this dive, I struck with that aircraft fire and set the airplane on fire, and I knew that I wasn't going to make it home because I was burning already. Dropped my bombs, then pulled off, and I had one goal in life. I tried to get 25 or 30 miles due south of Hanoi into the jungle where a helicopter could come and pick us up. If you went down anywhere around Hanoi within about 30 miles, they didn't even come up there. It was too oh, dangerous. wow. So I'm trying to do this, and I told you I, was, I had that airplane doing over 600 miles an hour, and I'm climbing out, trying, and I'm on fire, and I know I'm not going to make it, but I'm hoping I can get 30 or 40 miles into the jungle. And as luck would have it, it didn't. The flight controls, which are all hydraulic, burned through. The airplane just went, we call it a tuck, went straight nose down to the ground. Mm. And I had no time to think, just jump out. And you so, do that at a couple hundred miles an hour? 600 miles an hour. And squeeze the triggers on the armrest, and the canopy comes off, and you're blown out of the airplane about 65 feet in the air. I did that, and that knocked me unconscious. And uh, But the, all automatic. Once you go out of the airplane, the seat separates, and then the parachute automatically deploys, and you float down. That's good because I actually landed unconscious. If I hadn't, wow. if I hadn't gotten the parachute, I wouldn't be here. Then yeah, I landed in a plowed field 28 miles outside of Hanoi, captured by Vietnamese men, women, and children who just beat me black and blue. And it would have killed me if I'd been there five minutes longer, but I heard some rifle shots in the air, and the people backed away, and I was taken prisoner. I was carried into the, what we call it, the Hanoi Hilton in downtown, left blindfolded, bound, and gagged, lying on a stretcher all day. And uh, it happened at 7.30 in the morning, so I know it was all day. That night, they took me upstairs into a, a, I guess it was a small hospital, untied me, a Vietnamese doctor looked at me and says, Kirk, you're very badly injured. You'll probably die. And he took me out and tied me back. He didn't do a thing. He didn't even get an aspirin. And he left me alone for about two days. Then he took me in for interrogation. And at that time, they had to carry me. I couldn't walk for two months because of laying in unconscious, banged my legs up. They untied me, and I couldn't walk. So they sat me on the floor and propped me up with a box behind my back. And the first words out of that guy's mouth was, Kirk, you are not a prisoner of war. You're a war criminal. You've committed crimes against the Vietnamese. You'll be tried and most probably shot. Now answer all of our questions. Every military guy knows you give name, rank, serial number, date of birth if you're captured. Nothing else to your best of your ability. Well, I did that. They wouldn't accept it. And uh, they kept trying to get me to answer. And I wouldn't answer questions. And uh, the guy says, Kirk, it's going to be very difficult for you here. You're very stupid. And they got up and left. I thought, well, this isn't so bad. I can handle this. Pretty soon the door opened, and the biggest man I ever saw in Vietnam, who was a torture expert, came in. And they, they tied me up with ropes and so forth in a way that I haven't got time to describe and left me lying there on the floor, completely tied up, gagged and for I don't know how long. Then they came back in and completely untied me and then asked me, was I ready to answer the questions? And I said no, and I went through three days and nights of this. On the fourth morning when they came in, I was a vegetable. 
I mean, I was so far gone from there's nothing in my life or anybody's life worse than unremitting pain. And that's what it was. And, and I had gone so far, I was like an animal. And when they untied me, I broke. I have no idea to this day what I said, but I gave them something. I don't know what, I always hate that, but I gave them something. Then they put me into a cell by myself. If you can picture a six foot by seven foot masonry cell, haven't seen another soul by myself for the first time, not tied up, just sitting there on a bunk. And I'm thinking, I want to die. If you can picture, it's the most, most terrible thing I can ever think of in my life. Picture, I'm 38 years old. I'm at the top of my game. I've done what I'm trained to do. I'm leading a squadron, flying combat. I'm shot down, very badly injured, got out of the parachute. No one saw me get down. They didn't know whether I was alive or dead for three years. I'm captured and put in a prison camp, tortured, and fail. And I absolutely wanted to die, but didn't have a choice. They wouldn't let us die. So I dealt with that. And the days went by, and perhaps every five minutes, I would say, why me, God? What, mm-hmm. did, why, why did, what did I do? Is there anything I could have done with that airplane? Why did this have to happen? Did that sh- why did that shell hit me? Why, why, why? And I think something that almost everybody goes through in a situation like that. And then one morning, and I don't know ex- exactly when, I w- got up. And I stomped my foot on the ground. I said, by God, I've got to dig deep. I've got to figure out some way to deal with this and get my spirits up and do, make myself determine I'm going home someday. And as God is my witness, from that day on, I did fine in the prison camp. I had just made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to give in. I wasn't going to feel bad. I was going to do my best to fight my way through that battle to come home someday. And I could tell you stories for hours of cowardice, bravery, frustration, torture, and things. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. If you think about a six-by-seven-foot masonry cell with a wooden door, never unlocked, and there's a little hole in the door so they can look in at you, they give you two bowls of soup, a little bowl of soup in the morning, a bowl of soup in the afternoon. That's all the food you get. And I, I went down 180 pounds, and I got down to 90 pounds in the camp. After 28 days of by myself, I really began to pull myself together. And one evening, they came in and took me out and walked me down the corridor. And there's the first three people I'd ever seen, Americans, three, wow. guys, three guys sitting on a board in a cell uh, in a room with their back to me. And they carried me inside out. And the four of us lived together for 14 months. Three Navy guys, of all things. What's the key? to being in a six-foot-by-seven-foot concrete prison cube for 28 days, hungry, hurt, tortured. What's the key to flipping the switch from negative to positive? Being an American, that's a simple answer. I can't imagine how somebody from, we had some guys up there from Thailand, we had guys from Australia, we had from all over, but there's something in us, and, and I've, I talk about it, any time I make, I talk about when times get hard, you lose a husband or a wife or a child. God gives us every human being the ability to deal with a situation, and you never lose a love, but you get to get over it. You've got to go forward. You can't collapse and try to live in the past or live in hurt, live in pain. You've got to dig deep and find within you what we as Americans and our freedom and our way of life is. 
we have strength that we don't even realize that you dig down and you find it's there. And it, it's, it's true in my I, absolutely with everybody I knew, I feel the same way about because I was certainly nobody special. I was just a guy happened to be hit with the golden BB we used to call wow. it. <clears throat> anyway, well, you know, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a math guy and uh, you're in an F one oh five. I want to find out why they called them the thuds. Uh, you're in an F-105 diving in, carrying your bombs, traveling 600 miles an hour, and the anti-aircraft Magic BB yeah. takes your tail off. Had, had they pulled the trigger a nanosecond sooner, or you been later. traveling five miles an hour slower... Oh, 10 feet left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wouldn't it have been any different? Because every single day that you're up there was four times worse than the biggest fireworks display you've ever seen in your life. And it's all it's aimed all coming you. by you. Just aimed at you, coming by you. Aimed at every individual airplane. And you think, my God, how do we get through it? And you pull off, and you pull out, and you get to back to about 10,000 feet, and you, <laughs> God, we made another one. I've, I've got to ask one question. Before you reach down to the seat and pull those ejection triggers. Is there one universal pilot prayer you say before you squeeze those triggers? No, it's not a universal pilot prayer. It's O-S, you know. O, I'm not going to say the word. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you squeeze the triggers. And then on the way down in the parachute, you say a little prayer. Then you say a prayer. If, you, if you're awake, but I wasn't awake. Anyway, uh, so. Well, we've only yeah, met. Yeah, yeah. But, and I, I know a lot of veterans. Um, but I'll tell you what, I can see in your eyes, I can hear in your voice, having known what you've gone through, you, you, you don't have like one ounce of self-pity. Oh, you. no. It was, one of my cellmates, a Navy guy who just died recently, told me one day, he says, quit bitching about being in here. If you can't take a joke, you shouldn't have joined up. <laughs> I said, that's a pretty heavy joke. <laughs> but it's true, No. It was a terrible experience, but we were pretty happy when we found that way. But life you, didn't you change. You survived five yeah, we, years. We, yeah, I was That's with those it. four guys I told you about in the first cell, and we got caught uh, after about 14 months. We, we had a rhubarb, and we got separate, separated, and I was put in solitary for nearly two years. And that was in a, a six-by-seven concrete. Right. And no, never out of the cell except to go out. Five minutes a day, throw a little water in your face and dump your toilet bucket and go back in. Nothing to read, nothing to write, nothing to do but sit there for five and a half years. How do you, and, how do you save yourself from that? You come up with a complete routine. Like you go to work in the morning, you exercise. You think, I used to walk four and a half miles a day in the cell, three and a half steps each way. And I, I played flute when I was younger, fling clarinet. I said, you know... And I got a little stick about that long, and I would do hours every day of technical exercises like I was playing my flute. And uh, I could do anything I wanted to do to pass the time because you got to have a routine or you go nuts. All right. You've been listening to the story <laughs> of United States Air Force Colonel Thomas H. Kirk, who happens to be the Storyteller Award recipient for the Veterans Heritage Project, who have a banquet coming up Saturday, March 7th, and the number one auction item available, or the premier auction item available at that banquet, is a private dinner with Colonel Kirk and his wife. And is there a time limit? I mean, you're, you're used to spending 
two and a half years in solitary confinement. If I bid on that dinner, can we make it last like about a week? <laughs> no. You have plenty of it. Plenty to do without listening to me for a week, I'll tell you that. Well, it's been an honor listening to you, <laughs> you in this past hour. Again, a salute, my hat's off, my hand over my heart for you and those like you who have served what is the greatest country in the history of mankind, the United States of America. Amen. Wrapping up, highlighting the Veterans Heritage Project and their upcoming couple events and their special recipient of the Storyteller Award, Colonel Thomas H. Kirk. I know you give your presentation to many people, and I know through the Veterans Heritage Project, many of those people are school-age students. Mm -hmm. What's the number one takeaway you want them to have when they finish hearing you out? That's a very interesting question and one that I try to close every talk with. And I say to the ladies in the morning when you comb your hair, fix your face, and the guys when you shave, whatever you do, look in the mirror and ask yourself, how am I doing? And I don't mean ego-wise. I mean, how are you doing as a parent, a son, a brother, child, or whatever it happens to be? When you do that, you can't lie to yourself. You look and you say, I'm doing well. You're the greatest guy in the world. The world is your oyster. If you're not satisfied with the answer to your question, it ain't your teacher. It's not your parents. Only you can change and make your life better. And I am so much better and a stronger person from having been through that experience. And I would ask you only to remember this old soldier, not as a guy that's telling you a horror story, but is one of the proudest and happiest people on the face of the earth for having served, gone through this, and been spared, and have my life in front of me. And I ask you, think about what you have as an American and enjoy every day of your life and give back to your friends and your country. How did you find out in the Hanoi Hilton the war was over? Well, they told us. The camp commander came out and told us. Uh, the President Nixon sent the B-52s, the big intercontinental bombers, to Hanoi for the first time on the, I believe it was, it may be wrong, by two days, the 18th of December of 72, and we blockaded the harbor so that they couldn't get supplies, and we were bombing Hanoi, which had never been done, and we were in the prison camp, and they were bombing, and it Concrete was falling off the tops of the cells on us, and we were screaming for joy because we knew the war would end soon. And it, we, I think with all my heart, we could have ended it in 67 if it hadn't been a political war. Amen. But, but anyway, uh, <clears throat> when they came up and started bombing, we knew the war was going to end, and it did end on the 23rd of January, and they told us the next day, and all they did was the camp commander came in and called us, and there were seven different camps, and called us to the outside and stood us up and says, the war is over, and if all goes well, you'll go home soon. Oh, And that's how we knew about it. goodness. Then, that uh, sense chills up my back. <laughs> absolutely. Just trying to imagine what that, how you process that oh, information yeah, yeah. after being subjected to everything you'd been subjected to for five and a half years? Well, they put us in buses uh, the day we came home. They put us in buses and carried us out, and we were on 
the Tom Kirk Memorial Bridge. Now, on the bridge that I had bombed, I called it the Tom Kirk Bridge. <laughs> and I look up and there's this beautiful white American transport coming into land to take us home. There were 27 on my bus crying like babies. Oh. And we got out there behind the airfield, behind the hangar, and we sat there. It must have been two hours. Every one of us, oh, my God, we're going back. Something happened. It didn't matter. Because every time they gave us a banana in the camp, you thought the war was going to end. Oh. And anyway... And we sat there, we were sitting there. Finally, they marched us out in a column of twos, and there was an American general and a Vietnamese general in the airplane. And they'd call your name, you'd go up and salute, and they'd, there was a fellow waiting right there to take you by the arm to escort you right to the airplane. And we didn't mention, I didn't mention my good buddy John McCain, but John McCain and I were shot down two days apart and came home together. I was standing right behind him in the line to get on the airplane. And we remained friends as long as he lived. Uh, it was a glorious day, but you know, we put all the people on. There were two airplanes there, big transports. And we, we all got on the airplane very quietly and very studiously and talked and hugged each other, but nothing exciting. Wow. The airplane starts up and taxis <laughs> up. And as soon as the wheels left the ground, we up screaming and yelling yeah. and kissing each other. And all. We could oh. not believe we were coming home until we were actually in the air. Oh, that was man. pretty spectacular. Moment. Well, I can't imagine that at Rosie's house this morning, this Saturday morning, there's a dry eye in the house uh, just trying to put ourselves in those kinds of boots. And I can't thank you enough personally uh, for taking time to come and share your My story. Pleasure. My and pleasure. And congratulations on winning the Storyteller Award from the Veterans Heritage Project this year. Thank you very much. I'm honored. Folks, I can't encourage you enough to get to their website, veteransheritage.org, and go to backslash salute, and you'll see a couple of events that are coming up. The Veterans Heritage Project, with the, with the students, publishes an annual book, and Colonel Kirk will be in this year's edition, 2019. No, I was in the year 12, 2012. Okay, okay, so you're, a, you're an alumnus. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. But it is stories of veterans, and I believe this year's edition kind of highlights the Korean War, if I'm not mistaken. The Vietnam War. Okay. So there you go. Veteransheritage.org backslash salute. There's a couple events where the veterans will be there. You can buy a copy of the book. You can have the veterans sign the book. And then, of course, there's the saluting stories of service where Colonel Kirk will be recognized as the recipient of the Storyteller Award. And like I say, it's worth going and buying a ticket and getting that banquet just for the opportunity to bid on the opportunity to have dinner one-on-one with Colonel Kirk and his wife. God bless America.